Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. You thought that they had disappeared forever, but this is the moment we've all been waiting for. Ladies and gentlemen, the four horsemen. The girl horsemen. Nope. 
Welcome to the next real film board on Rashpixel.fm, everybody. Each month, our gang of thugs gathers to take on a movie just opening in theaters and spoil that film rotten. Tonight in the show, we're going to peek behind the curtain of John Chu's Now You See Me Too. I'm Pete Wright. Joining me around the table, we have handcuffed and sinking to the bottom of a dry Phoenix riverbed. It's Steve Sarmento. I'll be with you in just a moment. Let me just pick my way out of this safe. Hijacking a secure vault with nothing more than the power of his mind and his hat. It's Andy Nelson. That's right, and I'm trying to learn how to throw cards in really cool ways. And in what can only be described as a coincidence fit for the ages, I can't believe I get to say hello to our first girl horseman. Crazy. Welcome to the show, Alice Baker. Thank you so much for having me. And that's right, that's right. I'm putting my hands up. First girl. Hello, girl horseman. Long guy. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Alice is co-host and co-founder of the Educating Geeks team at educatinggeeks.com. Fantastic podcast that finally pushed me over the edge to binge Orphan Black, Alice. Oh, very good. <laughs> oh, such a good show. Isn't it? Isn't it? Well, oh, I'll be, how far are you? Okay, we're digressing already. Season, uh, I'm, I'm in season two now. I'm like three or four episodes into season two. Okay, so. okay. So, I but I did be, season I, one. I came up, I got the bends. I watched it so fast. Yeah, that first season is nearly perfect. It, she, it's so good. She is stunning. Tatiana yeah. Maslami. Muscle, yeah. She's yeah. amazing. Robbed, she should robbed be of in, every award. Yes. yes, because she should be in everything. <laughs> anyway, uh, what tell us, what, what do you want people to know about the uh, Educating Geeks uh, uh, network of shows? You do great network stuff. Network of shows. Thank you so much. Well, our, our, our hook over at Educating Geeks is we... We don't uh, revoke people's geek cards. We like to uh, welcome people into things that we're crazy excited about. So we always find at least one person, sometimes more than one person, that hasn't seen something, read something, read it, played it, whatever. Uh, And then we get a bunch of super geek fans on, and we all get together and talk about uh, whatever that piece of content was. And I always find the conversation really interesting to hear, you know, something, you know, I'm old, so all, you know, 80s stuff, you know, when somebody watches Blade Runner for the first time and they're like, eh? And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, and that conversation, I, I find that really uh, interesting. And so we have a lot of that uh, happen on this show. Excellent. Well, we are thrilled to have you and have you bring your insights to this conversation, especially because in the email exchange that started with our <laughs> inviting you, uh, your comment was, I believe, something to the effect of, uh, so I listened to your show on Now You See Me, the first one, and I have to ask, why are you doing this? <laughs> and, and you would be right. Uh, you know, the, the film board reviewed Now You See Me on June 3rd, 2013. And, uh, you know, for the most part, we trashed it. Uh, it sits yeah. at at number forty two right now out of forty six movies on our flick chart for this uh, this show, uh, and in fact, it, we wouldn't be talking about it at all if it were not for our colleague uh, Justin uh, JJ, who lobbied hard to get the second film in the franchise on our docket for this year, um, and and so it, you know because mostly because our review predate his participation, and I think he's been talking about it since he joined. Uh, about how he he wants to to just take a whack at it, and it would be it it is a tragedy of personal events that he can't actually be here on the show to defend his position, and here we are once again uh, to to see where it lands. Anyway, I I'm gonna say I watched this film again, the first one, 
uh, with my kids this weekend to get ready for number two. And uh, you won't find anyone more surprised than me to note that my own opinion has softened. The film was actually better on repeat viewings. I still have a lot of challenges with it, but it was more fun this time around, and it made me actually a little bit excited to see number two. So I'm anxious to see how the first movie has aged with you guys and to see if the new movie uh, scored any new points or if it belongs somewhere uh, below the first. So initial comments. Steve, would you kick us off? What did, how, did, how did number two hit you? It's all smoke and mirrors. There was little substance, and it's really a diminished reflection of the original. Probably a predictable start. Uh, Andy? <laughs> I think I liked it a little more than Steve did. Uh, you know, I, it was uh, the, the original was nonsense, and I had a lot of problems with it. This one I have um, also have a lot of problems with. However, I did feel that they added some new characters to this one that actually um, I ended up enjoying those elements that they added to this. And um, it didn't save the movie, but I did find that it was more fun than the original. Um, again, I'm not sure if that's saying a whole lot. But uh, I, I would say so far, I think I actually enjoyed this more than number one. But I haven't gone back and watched number one again. I haven't really had the itching to. Yeah, either, yeah so. just say it. <laughs> Glad not, you did that for me. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to. <laughs> All right, Alice, here you go. What do you think? Initial comments. Well, so I don't, obviously I wasn't on the first podcast, uh, but as I at least emailed Andy, I actually fell asleep halfway through the first first <laughs> film. <right. laughs> uh, and had to get up the next morning and watch it again in in preparation of seeing the the second one. So my opinion of the first one is not high. Although I I will be interested to hear from from you, Pete. I almost always like almost always I should say, but it's expectation. So once I know that I don't like a film, the second time I see it, I do generally like it better than I did the first time, unless it's just god awful and has no redeeming qualities. Because I already know what to expect, so I don't. You know, I hate it less the second time. Um, so I'd be curious to know if that, if you think that might play into a little bit of why you liked it better the second time. Oh, spoiler, um, 100% yes. But, oh, so okay. You, you may go on. <laughs> okay. Um, but I, I think I'm in the same camp as Andy where uh, I still probably laughed out loud in the movie theater at inappropriate times when no one else was laughing uh, because there are so many ridiculous, not understandable things about the film. Uh, but I did enjoy the ride. I didn't fall asleep and I did enjoy the ride uh, more than I did the first one. That that is a that is a fair and balanced comment. And and to your point, I think part of what makes me, uh, I, I part of what really frustrated me about the first movie is that what I wanted is not what they gave me, and so I walked out of that movie extremely disappointed that it didn't meet my expectations. And what I ended up uh, doing the second time around, just knowing what I was going to get, uh, I ended up being able to let go of those preconceptions and actually see uh, the movie for for really what it what it was. It was frivolous. It came off the rails. It didn't. I, I mean. There were. It was a ride in which you could sometimes look down and just see that you're not. There are no rails even to be found, uh, and so this movie, I think, actually, uh, while the first movie was at great odds with itself, not knowing quite what it wanted to be, number two, actually, to, for me, it solves some of its predecessors' problems. It creates for me a more, uh, at least, a more solid uh, sort of premise. That even if I I don't like the premise, it it has one, and I I found that was a good thing. Unfortunately, I think it introduces some some all new set of problems that that uh, that I'm I'm not sure it knows what it's what it's doing. The premise of the film, it's it, you know our four horsemen are back, 
uh, they they resurface. They are uh, forcibly now recruited by this tech genius to uh, pull off their most impossible heist yet and steal a computer chip from a vault. Uh, and uh, they they end up doing that thing uh, with all of their flair and panache and and brain power of master magicians. So that's that's the idea, uh, and it takes them all over the world. Uh, they uh, they start, I believe, in London. They end up in Macau, and uh, it is uh, definitely a global production uh, with global investors. And I think for me, it highlights the incredible value of original IP. I mean, this is one of those things nobody expected. There, I think probably even their uh, the cast themselves probably didn't expect there to be a sequel to Now You See Me. And and here we are. It is a surprise, I think, to to them as as maybe to us that we're seeing a Now You See Me too. The first one, I mean, yeah, it cost $75 million to make the first one. And yeah, I think uh, it ended up making like $350 million, uh, globally. So, I mean, it, it made a ton of money. And this yeah. one costs more. I'll be curious to see if it's able to hold up as well at the box office. But um yeah, it was. It just really shocked people that that first one did so well. And I, you know, it's. I guess, in a large part, it is because it's it's light and fun. And I, I think that's why the the you know the Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic scores are so skewing toward um, you know the the people who go watch it. They seem to love it, and the uh, the critics seem to not. And uh, it seems to be pretty much on par with this one. The, yeah, this was the same as the first one, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the issue with this and you know as far as original ip i mean it's it's great to see them you know we're not pulling something from a comic book it's not from a tv show we've got these original characters but i mean my biggest issue was the it seemed to tie itself so much to the first film that you know we have this title sequence that's that's to me it reminded me of like uh you know <laughs> BVS Doge, you know, it's like, <laughs> how many times do we need to get a credit sequence that gives us the backstory of these characters? And to me, it, it gave us a, a quick summarization of the prior film, but it didn't really tell us anything about the characters. And that's what I, I, I enjoyed the first one. And, you know, I'm with Pete. I saw it again and can accept it for what it is. And it set my expectation for this one. But it, this one even let me down from those expectations because I came in with a premise of we're going to have lots of magic. And there was a minimal amount of magic. This is really more of a heist film. And there's a great sequence where they pull off a great heist. But what I really loved about the first one was these characters and their magic and them work, you know, struggling to work together as a team. And they tried to pull that into this one. But for me, it just, there was too much time spent dealing with the themes and plot ties to the first film that there was very little time for what I was hoping to see, which was the Four Horsemen do cool magic tricks, pulling off cons, heists, whatever, and we just didn't get any of that at all. It was a lot of scenes with two characters doing a lot of talking to explain the past and why they were doing things now, and very little magic, performance, the the thrill and fun of the first film. I just didn't get that here. So as the outsider here, I'm gonna I'm gonna say one of the things that I remember from the first podcast was actually a lot of talk about the the magic, and I'm air quoting, the magic in the first film really being a bunch of CGI and not being particularly believable uh, because it was so heavily um, special effects. And uh, one of the things I actually think that it was more interesting in this film, uh, was that most of the magic uh, felt more quote-unquote real in some way and partly because they go out of their way 
to show you how they did it. <laughs> so yeah. Even if it was CGI, they at least are going to pretend to tell you why it wasn't CGI uh, to make the, the magic feel more, the magic that is in the film, uh, feel more real. They definitely went a little more pen and teller with this one where they kind of, you know, this is how we did all of these tricks. They kind of go and kind of show you so much of it. And, you know, I do appreciate that with this one because that first one, there were so many, that was one of my biggest problems with that first one is so many of the magic tricks. It's like, okay, now we're in giant bubbles floating across the crowd. And it just was so nonsensical. I'm like, none of this, this is all just movie magic. Yes. But, but actual like magician magic, I just totally didn't buy into it. And sure, this one has some moments like, you know, when, Jesse Eisenberg falls into the the rain puddle and his body disappears. I mean, it does have some of those moments that are, you know, make me roll my eyes. I'm like, oh, come on. Or when Lizzie Kaplan is magically, you know, making herself appear all over his apartment in completely impossible ways. Um, there are those moments throughout this film. And, and the card trick thing, when they're flipping the card around with the chip on it also was it was fun to watch, but I was like, oh, this is a little, a little bit of a stretch. But, you know, these these movies are a stretch. And so, I, I really struggled with the magic in the first one, and I actually appreciated that this one, I, like you said, I, it, it did feel like they were going out of their way to make it seem a little more realistic this time. And I, I appreciated the heist element of it more with this one, because the first one was a big heist. It's just, it was kind of glossed over with all that fake uh, magic. And this one, you know, I don't know, it just, it ended up feeling a little more fun, even though I still had a lot of those problems with it. This this is really the uncanny valley of on-screen magic, right? Like, you know, this is the, the benefit of these magic shows when you go see a live magician is you want to try to figure it out. And I think seeing it on screen, at least I find I don't trust it immediately because it's on screen. I am prejudiced to believe that there is no way what they are doing on screen is legitimate. So I spent a lot of time today watching all of the behind-the-scenes featurettes that I could find uh, that have been trickling out, uh, or I should say flooding out over this weekend, and I am really surprised to see just how much uh, of the the quote magic they are doing right the the in particular the vault sequence right you bring up the here they 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 break into the vault and they do it by throwing the the card they get the the chip out by throwing the card around in these very flamboyant ways and so much of that was these characters learning to throw cards to palm cards to do these things with their cards that look CG in the film. But when you see them doing it on the behind the scenes stuff, it is amazing to me how much they were actually able to do and how gratifying it is to see how good they got in these this set of moves they had to accomplish. And yet it's so frustrating that I still don't believe it when I see it on screen. It's still, it, it is still merged with so many of these fake flying cameras, the CG cameras that couldn't possibly, and the, you know, we're going to take the, uh, the, the, uh, essentially the, the laser scope cam down, you know, Eisenberg's shirt and down his pants as we follow the, the card down his shirt. I mean, that was it, like, that makes me lose, uh, you know, fall out of trust with all the stuff that they did really well. Yeah, I, what I didn't get about that scene, one, it just goes on too long. Like they, they needed to cut oh, yes. that sequence shorter. It just goes on too long. Uh, and and two, I didn't, after the first guy does it, he he's done, right? So he's done all of his fancy stuff, hiding it from the security guard. And then the security guard is finished with him. So why doesn't he just keep the card? <laughs> why does he then pass it to the next person who's being felt down by the security guard? <laughs> like, they made no sense to me. Other than it's a good show and it's a lot of fun, it made no sense to me. 
why that sequence of events was actually occurring for reals. You know, like, again, I could appreciate it as a fun scene if they would have shortened it. Yeah, they each got patted down like it seemed like three or four times. And I know there's this, <laughs> there, there's a there's a point where Atlas, Jesse Eisenberg's character, uh, does something and it catches the guard's eye. So they isolate him and they're going to pat him down. And that made sense. I, the camera work made it a little disorienting for me to keep track of who who was being searched, why, when, and is you know, and how many times? Because it it did it did feel too long. It was an exciting you know sequence if they had pared it down a little bit. But really, I I thought okay, how many times do they need to pass this card to each other? Because after once, okay, you you pat down you know Franco. Okay, he's done. Get it to Woody. If he's patted down, then you can get the card to any one of them, and it should be fine. But they have to keep flipping it and sliding it across the floor. Just I I felt like. It was showing off like here's here's the fun we could do. And Pete, I'm right with you. When I walked out of the theater, I thought, you know, I I really don't know that they were able to actually physically pull that trick off because it, it seems like something that would be too easy to do with CGI. And because it is mixed in with those shots that are, are completely clearly going to be computer generated, that it casts all doubt about the, the actor's ability to actually do any of those tricks, which is a shame if they're actually able to, to physically perform those those card tricks. The, th- the trick that ended up feeling the the most real because it felt like the most fake to me in the film was actually the airplane scene at the end. Mm. Like th- That whole thing felt like they never really took off. Like the whole thing, was, I, I, I had such a hard time feeling the reality of the plane in the sky and everything. And then, of course, once you're, they're chucking them out the plane, I'm like, oh, of course this whole thing is fake. But, uh, you know, I'm kind of in on it with them by that point. It, it, it almost surprised me that Michael Caine and Daniel Radcliffe and everyone else actually believe that the plane took off because it just felt so fake to me. And that's that's going to be the the plot of Now You See Me 3 because nobody fools Michael Caine like that <laughs> and gets away with it. Nobody does that. Um, you know, I, I actually agree with you. And I think to your point about the that the uh, uh, the card vault sequence was too long, I, I'm not sure that it was too long only in one, uh, one sense that there is no giant fantastical final uh, trick. The final trick of dropping the walls and they're sitting on a, essentially a floating set with this airplane is not all that gratifying. Like, it, it is not a resolution that is satisfying for me. Uh, it is not as, certainly not as fantastical as the final scene uh, sequence in Now You See Me 1 with all of the 3D projectors on the side of that building and them flying off and turning into money. That That was a very dramatic visual and there is no such dramatic visual in this sequence and and I found that really disappointing and it made me think gosh I I'll bet that they they really make this card sequence the central giant uh you know m- magic experience because we we don't have very much of that no the the one sequence I'm looking forward to is they're in London they're each showing up in their locations and you know um Lulu is teasing us with I'm going to make this huge you know ship fly across the air and it's the one time we see uh, Atlas, Jesse Eisenberg's character, perform a magic trick at all. It's just the one time with the, the rain. As I recall, that's, he does one trick, and that's it. And so they're all built. We're building up to these, these great tricks they're going to do. It seems like there's more. And then something happens, and, oh, they've got to cut it short. And I thought, you, I've been waiting for this whole movie for them to be the four horsemen out there performing their street magic in front of the crowds. It was all the thrills that we had in the first film, and then they cut it short. They, they tease us with things, and then they're done. They pull the carpet out from under us, and I was extremely disappointed because that was what 
I was coming to this film for. The script is is by Ed Solomon. He was involved in the first one. He's he has written the screenplay for this one. Uh, he was the pen behind uh, the Bill and Ted movies, Excellent Adventure. Uh, he's a vet from uh, Gary Shandling Show and Dave Thomas. Uh, he wrote Men in Black. Uh, are, are we feeling the connection that he has given us here? Did it feel like a logical step moving into uh, Now You See Me 2 uh, with the eye as much more of a central um, central premise? Well, I mean, if you think about it in terms of, gosh, maybe we have a franchise on our hands. How do we how do we give this thing how how do we give it legs? I know a secret organization that we can send our folks out on missions almost like a spy movie. Could be James Bond for spot for magicians. I mean to me the whole sort of almost moving the film the mixture of the magic to the heist, you know, and what that what that mixture was going to be and making it more about the heist and the double and the triple uh, the flip, you know, first you think this is where all of the bad guys are. And now you think this is happening. And now we're going to flip it back and then we're going to flip it back. All of the, the shift to more of that kind of stuff to me was how, how do we give this thing legs and how, how do we make it go on? Because it does have less magic in it and it is more heisty. Uh, and, but I did like the writing better in this one, actually. I, there are a lot of the, uh, it felt almost uh, 40s uh, comedy for me. There was a lot of very fast back and forth, tete-a-tete. Um, I way preferred Lulu's characterization over Isla Fisher, if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, I, I liked her. I, liked, I thought the writing was much snappier uh, for this one than for the first one. Yeah, the writing stuck with me a little bit better with this one. Um, it, you know, it's funny, though. That being said... I came into this one. I think I'm probably the only one here who it's been uh, the full three years since I've seen the first one. Uh, sounds like everyone else here has seen it pretty recently. I totally forgot like the whole thing with Shrike and the the backstory connection between Morgan Freeman's character and and Ruffalo's character. And so that like when we saw the the flashback at the beginning, like for me that was almost like a I was uh, you know getting that story the first time. So it's kind of funny. I walked into this almost blind. Um, but I, I think that also said how in the first film, so many of those story elements felt um, just so disconnected, like they were just finding ways to kind of thrust all these things at us that, you know, and finding these forced, uh, forced connections. And even in the first one, my recollection is how by the time we had the big reveal with Mark Ruffalo's character at the end of the film, it felt like they almost wrote it where uh, up to that point, it could have been anybody and you could have almost dropped in Morgan Freeman or Michael Caine or anybody to be that fifth horseman. And it would have just been as logical as Mark Ruffalo because it was just, it was all nonsense here. It felt like they actually uh, worked to tie things together a little more. Like I don't feel like there was any of that random, just, you know, nonsense of how things connected. This one actually felt like everything was connected. And, mm. and I felt like the story actually made, a little more sense and kind of helped pull that first one into, I don't want to say a logical, you know, place, but at least it felt like things fit a little bit better. Well, that was the, that was the point of our frustration last time, Andy, which was that, that, you know, there is no way for the audience to go back and watch the first movie and be able to piece it all together. And that is one of the most sort of central rewards to these kinds of films when done right, that you miss 
everything the first time, but once you're slapped in the face with it, you can go back and piece it together and make sense of it. And the first movie did not. Uh, it, it did not even from structurally all the way to Ruffalo's portrayal of that character. You can't even go back and say that what he is doing on screen, how he is emoting on screen, makes any sense once you see that he's the guy. It's like he didn't even know he was the guy. That right. was the an example of the filmmakers trying to play a trick on the audience, in my view. Like they played a trick on us, and this is a movie about them trying to play a trick on each other. We're generally in the know most of the time. No, 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 no. They pulled the, they pulled the same thing at the very end, where it's like, oh, this whole thing from the beginning, the eye was behind this, and then again, it's oh yeah, the Mark Ruffalo's character, you know, Dylan being put in the safe and thrown in the river. Oh yeah, yeah, that was all part of the plan. I'm like, really risking this guy's life. It's one of the things that bothers me the most about. A film like this where we are expected to assume that some of these characters have such an in-depth understanding of human nature that they can play everyone like a master chess player to get everybody to act the exact way for this to play out so that ultimately this endgame resolves itself this way. We get a reveal which is probably played for laughs of the the head guy at the, the vault is actually in on it. And I thought, so the I had a guy on the inside, so we had this whole big high sequence for what purpose? Right. Because they needed they needed the four horsemen to have the card have, for Daniel Radcliffe. And it's like, so apparently they had such confidence in their ability to mip, manipulate everybody and knew how Michael Caine and Daniel Radcliffe's characters would react, that it would all play to their ultimate endgame. And to me, that's where it just falls apart again. It's the same same problem we had with the first one. I see with this one. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I I I abstain. I, I I'd like to uh, annul my final comment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I mean, when you were when you were saying that, see, if I was thinking to myself, you mean like what? Like a master magician can. <laughs> You know, read somebody where they're going to be looking and what they're going to be thinking and they're doing all this misdirection and playing the ultimate long game. You know, I mean, they set it up that way. I mean, for me in movies all the time, you're either going to be there and suspend your disbelief and roll with it. Uh, or you're not because you can take those same things about what's believable in terms of a storyline and what somebody's motivation is and what somebody can interpret about somebody else's character and you can look at a ton of movies and that just falls apart and you have to be willing at some point to uh, let it go or not. I think I agree with you wholeheartedly that in this film, a lot of what you would have to let go if you were going to be there 100 percent, you know, and completely suspend your disbelief is pretty impossible to do. But, you know, they do in their own little world set that up uh as as things that are actually you know possible and and doable. Oh um, sure, because you can count on the fact that Jesse Eisenberg is going to put his cell phone down on the edge of that piece so that they can pull his information from it. Because the chances of him just actually leaving his cell phone in his pocket are so slim. Because you can count pretty highly that he's going to put his phone there so that they can pull the information from it. So it's I, I agree. I mean, we can nitpick and we can pull threads, but I just, to the point of, I think the film suffers from some of the similar flaws as the first, that there's something in how it's architected that I think they're, they're reaching a little bit too far for what they're trying to pull off, asking a little bit too much of the audience. And to me, it's, a lot of it comes from the, the eye and trying to flesh that out a little bit more and, and tie it back. 
I would be okay. I was interested to see where they went because they, they leave off being part of the eye, you know, joint at the end of the first film. So for this one, I thought, okay, yeah, we're going to see a different side. You know, I avoid trailers as much as I can. So I was, I was really not expecting to see Mark Ruffalo or Michael Caine or Morgan Freeman in this film at all because I thought it's titled some places online. It's now you see me the second act. So I'm expecting, you know, phase two, different characters. I wasn't expecting such a strong connection to the first film. And for me, that that was part of the problem that I think those ties back to trying to connect to the eye and how it ties back to Dylan as a kid and, and Morgan Freeman's relationship with his father was just too much. And I w- wanted so much more movement forward than looking back to the first. All of these problems will be solved, Steve, once they finish fleshing out the Now You See Me cinematic universe. <laughs> Is that, Which is I'm that sure where, they hope to do. A, yes. I'm sure they do. <laughs> does, does that mean I can expect a, a standalone film about Chase McKinney? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> actually, because actually he was an interesting character. There was something that I at first I thought, okay, the only way they were going to get Woody to do this film was say, hey, Woody, we're going to get you twice the amount of screen time. You're going to play your twin as well. With so. better teeth and hair. With better teeth and hair. <laughs> well, I'm not sure hair. the teeth were an improvement, actually. No, they actually have uh, 13 episodes spec'd out. It's a, it's a serialized comedy uh, that takes place in a Macau magic shop. I, you're going to love it. <laughs> They're all thumbs. That's what it's called. <laughs> Oh, coming soon on Netflix. There you go. You see, I mean, just we're just rolling with it. Uh, direction. This is uh, Andy. I am so excited to hear your thoughts on this. <laughs> I have been looking forward to this for months. Director John Chu. We know John Chu from many films: uh, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Never Say Never, the Justin Bieber film, Step Up to the Streets, and of course, Andy's favorite film of all time: Gem and the Holograms. Well, you might be selling it a little strongly there. <laughs> Did that's what I need to know, Andy? Is did this film live up to Gem and the Holograms? That is our central question. <laughs> I would definitely prefer to watch Gem and the Holograms again over this. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not saying that I thought he did a bad job. I mean, like I said, I actually feel like this one was stronger than the first one. Um, I would prefer to watch this one. I think he had uh, you know a fun time directing this one. I thought uh, I will say some of the action sequences were really muddled. I had a really uh, just a, a hard time figuring out what was going on like during the motorbike chase uh it wasn't even really a chase mm-hmm. motorbike confusion whatever was going on there it was kind of a uh, an action directorial mess you couldn't really see who was doing what where they were spatially um by the time the whole thing was over i was almost surprised that they were all still pretty much in the same spot that they started in um so <laughs> it was most, terrible like, <laughs> it was that part of the comedy coming out people i mean seriously that was the worst chase scene ever. Yeah, it's like they were the trying to... The motorcycle one? Yes, they all get yeah. on bikes and none mm-hmm. of them leave. They can't really get out, I guess was the point, is they were trying to scare the guys to get past them. I Like, I couldn't quite figure out what the point of that whole thing was, uh, other than Woody was stuck. But no, I, I think that, uh, that Chu uh, directed... Uh, most of the stuff well, and I, I think that he he did a, a fair job of of putting this everything together, um, except for some of the action sequences. I, I just really struggled with those. But like, I, I, despite the problems I have with the way like the the card and the uh, you know stealing the chip out of the out of the vault, 
the nonsensical way that that actually played out, like we already talked about, I still think it was directed well. It was a fun scene to watch. Well, I, Andy, I agree. I was I was really surprised. I first became familiar with his work on a little internet series he directed called the LXD, the League of Extraordinary Dancers, which is sort of like dance superheroes. And with all the choreography and visual style to that, I was really expecting some really interesting dynamic things. So I was really surprised. For me, in addition to the motorcycle non-chase there was the scene where uh, mark ruffalo is fighting in the marketplace and he was fighting a bunch of guys and for me it was just again very muddled as far as how many people were there where he was and i know that part of that may have been an attempt to disorient us so that he could pull off some of his tricks that you know to fool the guys that are are after him to you know get one to run into a, a window those things but for me I, I just didn't get a sense of how he was doing these things, where he was, or how many guys were after him, and I was kind of disappointed because I've I've seen you know this director pull off really great action sequences, so I I don't know why that was such a struggle. I'd be if we look at that high sequence, you know, there's a card going around and it may run long, but it's visually it was easy to track. You know, again, I don't know why everybody had to be searched so much, but that seemed much more fluid. The others, it was so chopped up uh, and, and frenetic in its pacing and cutting that it just really was, uh, I don't want to say unsettling, but I guess just dis really disorienting to me. And it was a little disappointing because I, I felt like either I was losing track of the story, you know, who's got who and who are they chasing and why. Um, and it, maybe that's just, I, I couldn't tell if it was solely the editing and direction or if there was also writing that was a problem with that that they were trying to get around for me it was yeah. like fast action versus slow action so all the fast action sequences really didn't work particularly well for all the reasons you guys have eloquently pointed out this the quote-unquote slower action scenes like the card scene like the scene at the very beginning where at the octo launch you know where they're doing the backstage and he's taking off his clothes and they're magically landing exactly where they're supposed to be and she's sawing off her arm and all of that stuff that's more the slow action those worked okay for me uh but the minute things had to move more quickly uh he he lost me. For a guy who directs like amazing dance choreography, you'd think that he would mm. really have a good handle on handling those action moments and finding the way to choreograph it and shoot it in a way that really worked well. The the real highlight of his work for me in an action film is is actually in G.I. Joe Retaliation. It's the cliffside samurai chase, which I thought was gorgeous. And in a movie that otherwise I don't give a, a whole lot of thought to, that's a sequence that really sticks with me. And so, you know, I, I haven't seen his dance movies, and I have heard uh, others say that I should really, you know, for, for great sort of action dance shots i should check out the step up movies and and his is as good as any step up two and i think he did step up three as well but but i absolutely i think alice that is a, a spot on point that that his the slower stuff the stuff that is more akin to dance movement the, the just sort of kinesthetic movement is really strong it's a strong suit for him and fight scenes and chase scenes he hasn't mastered yet uh but but I, I enjoyed his work here. I mean, I actually had a good time uh, watching. I didn't find myself completely distracted by the uh, by the fight scene uh, as much as as you did, Steve. I, I felt like uh, like Ruffalo actually did pretty well in that sequence. I, I thought the motorcycle chase. I feel like if I had just been instructed 
to laugh or not to laugh, I, I would have been better off. I just didn't know what to do. Was it supposed to be funny or, or uh, just a mess? Like, I, I didn't know. Well, it was, it was Rufio getting to do to other people what uh, Franco's character did to him, right? In the, yes. In the first one with all the fancy using his sleight of hand skills to fight. Wait, which which what you're yes you're talking about the Macau street vendor scene yes fight. exactly yeah, yeah, exactly absolutely. it's his it's his sleight of hand mixed with presumably his FBI training so which, it's a mix of those two things which was great although the cooler sequence for me was the much shorter one when he was initially found out and they arrested him and pushed him up against the the risers and he got himself out of the cuffs and disappeared in addition to the you know always be the smartest guy of the room scene in the first movie like those scenes are now really rewarding for me i get a little rise out of it like my i get the 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 chills you know when i see that because i i want to be able to magically cgi handcuffs on people um but but i really like that right from a story point and i loved his that that was really rewarding to finally get him to come out uh, and it, to the to his you know his compatriots and say okay I'm not who you thought I was now it's time we get to move on to the next chapter where we're in a world where you know that I'm I'm one of these guys I thought that was really good yeah I, I did too I, I do feel like uh, with his character in particular uh, here they kept kind of like you know pointing out to us that oh he's so much more than we thought he was and the the one that just really made me roll my eyes was when. Um, Morgan Freeman surprised us with, hey, I speak Mandarin. And then, of course, Ruffalo replies to him in Mandarin. I'm like, oh, of course he does. That, you know, what, what can't he do? <laughs> that, that, to me, was a little much. Your English isn't that good either. <laughs> uh, we've been we've been doing this thing uh, on the show Andy you want to take a crack at first shot last shot well I, I think we have to try to remember exactly what the first shot is because um, in my head it's the spiral staircase as Morgan Freeman's voiceover kicks in but I couldn't remember if that happened before or after the flashback to Mark Ruffalo's dad on the banks of the river oh that's good do we rem- did anybody remember the very first shot of the film no well, that's telling. <laughs> see, I, see I, I think it's the river because after that we get the title credits, which are are really interesting. Where we get Morgan Freeman's narration, and that's where I thought we we get sort of the you know believe and lie and all those cool visuals, and then we get that shot of that spiral staircase eye as he's talking about an eye for an eye, and then we go to you know. Atlas, you know, working, you know, coming down because it was again a similar sort of spiral shape. But to me, it was, I seem to recall it being that piece with, you know, Dylan as a kid on the banks because I thought, oh, we're, we're going to go to his origin story again because we got that at the end of the last film. We're going to start with that again. You know, to your point though, I, I think Andy is a great example, having not having seen the film uh, in a while. Uh, and this was, John Chu said this in, in the making of stuff. He said, you know, we didn't know what people were going to remember as original IP. We didn't know if people would remember these characters' names, let alone their relationships to one another. And so I, I feel like they erred on giving more information than less. And I, I didn't find it troublesome. And in fact, for my younger kid who, who you know watched them both he, he needed it like he even though he'd sure. watched the original movie the night before he he needed yeah. to track again what that was so sure sure and then the last shot as i recall is the forestman coming down the spiral staircase which as it turns again is that eye shape and that bright 
brightly lit white stair spiral staircase. Yeah, I don't even think they come down. The, I think it's just the shot up, and oh, they just the will shot, look yeah. down over the the thing. And, yeah. and Morgan Freeman says exactly the same words yes. uh, that he does earlier. They do. They do. It seems like they at least lean back off the stairs. So I, I assume they walk down because I know they're not in the actual eye as as it stares down. Oh us. right. Ah, uh, ah. Uh, I see what you're saying. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's. I mean, it's this the the connection to the eye piece. I thought was was interesting, and maybe. Now this is, for lack of a better term, is this we're rebooting the franchise because they're now really part of the eye, whereas they weren't before, but now they are. As we see them coming down the spiral staircase, that they're now going to be part of this organization that we can now crack the story open wider to see what their role is as part of that. That's what I'm hoping for, because to me, this there was so much spinning the wheels story-wise that I feel like now at the end, we've, we're starting to get some potential traction of movement forward i i mean i could the i totally left that theater thinking exactly that steve that they made more money than they expected to so they've like we've got a potential franchise on our hands how can we turn this into like i said before how do we turn this into something that has legs now we've got a scooby gang that has this kick-ass headquarters that they're going to work out of they have a lair <laughs> they have a lair you know i mean like they've done the perfect setup for now we can do these set piece movies about these amazing agents of i and who are going to go out and <laughs> and do movies you know i mean i that's exact in my head i was like oh smart marketing team or oh good thought executive producers where this is where we're going now you know yeah, it is funny because the the end of the first one is like now they're part of the eye, and then the second one is like you're part of the eye, but we're still not going to tell you anything about the eye. You don't get to meet anyone else in the eye. It's still like this kind of weirdly obscure group, and you get to the end and you find oh, of course the 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 people working the the oldest magic shop in the world part of the eye. So is the guy who you know runs the vault, and like these random people pop up as you know parts of the eye. And so it's kind of weird, but yeah, I guess now they're in the club and. They get to go on adventures for the eye now in part three. Well, and that's that is really, I think, what this film exists to do is establish the mythology because it was not established clearly. That was a major shortcoming in the first film. And I think they were really working hard to create something they can hang their hats on later. And so maybe we'll, we'll look at this film entirely differently, uh, you know, in three years when we're watching now you see me three, invariably doing this show without J.J. Well, it makes you wonder, because something like The Matrix, you know, they wrote, uh, the the Wachowskis wrote that with kind of a trilogy in mind, although they had to make it. And so often when you make a first film you uh, of the supposed trilogy, you still have to kind of make it as, okay, if it doesn't succeed, we still have to make it at least kind of stand on its own. It's not like it can be, you know, part one of Lord of the Rings. Um, and, and, the the flip side is when you make a movie like Now You See Me and you have something like The Eye, uh, it wasn't really planned to be part of a trilogy. Now they're going to do that. Yeah, you have to go back and now it's, I mean, it is fun, I guess, for this new writer to come on board and get to invent this mythology. Although it does make me curious if the guys who wrote the initial film had an idea of where it would go and if they actually ended up tracking any of that or if Ed Solomon kind of got to do his own thing with this Well, one. Ed Solomon was one of three writers on the first one. Oh, he was yes, on the first one. Yes, Ed okay. Solomon was on the first wasn't. one with Boaz Yakin and, and Edward Record, And so he has taken over sole writing 
Yeah, right. You know, I think this film actually shows that, right? I mean, it really demonstrates this is this feels much more like a like a single-handed, you know, message. Like these these were the things that were important to me in the first movie that I didn't really get to do much of, so now we're going to jam them all in here and see what happens. So, um uh, anyhow, let's let's blast through the cast a little bit, shall we? Uh, uh, starting with uh, Jesse Eisenberg as Danny Atlas, uh Buffy the Chippy. Uh how did he do with his new uh vastly improved haircut? <laughs> <laughs> I love this. You- this is my favorite quote that he had uh, when when asked about uh, you know how he likes playing this character. He says, "Well, it's just a lot better than playing <laughs> characters who loathe themselves and make other people feel bad, which is most of who I play." And I thought that's really true. You really have cornered the market on that character. Yeah, I mean they they I I, I think in the as you were pointing out and with an eye toward building the mythology and trying to build these characters, he's he, he feels a little bit softened, uh, perhaps a little bit more neurotic versus angry uh, in this one. But I again because it felt more heisty, you know, we don't see him really do a ton of tricks that feel magic-y. They're more heisty, you know, so he does that when they're doing the Octo uh, launch. He does all that quick change kind of stuff. But I thought all of his little neurotic twitches were, they were, they were mildly fun. The thing for him with me is they set him up at the beginning as, you know, this guy who's getting frustrated and he wants to take over the group and the eye tells him they're going to, even though it's not really the eye, but they tell him, oh, you're going to get your chance and all this stuff. And that kind of story element kind of fizzled out. It seemed like Mm. it was a setup that had a really weak payoff, the fact that he wants to take over this group and it never really goes anywhere. I mean, yes, he kind of has that moment where he tells Ruffalo's character, it's me now, I'm the one or whatever. But I I don't know, it just, it felt like that never really, never went anywhere as as an arc for him in the course of the film. He had a much more, I felt, defined arc in the first film. This one, there were just a couple moments where it's, you know, he's continually knocked down, like he's playing... Oh, he's playing the doctor. No, you're not really the doctor. You're you're Buffy. And then, you know, trying to take charge of the group and then seeing Mark, you know, Dylan being the one to really step up and take charge of the team. There wasn't I didn't really get a sense of that they knew what to do with his character in this one. He he started off at the beginning. I thought we would get more leadership out of him or more tension between him and Dylan, but there just there wasn't anything there that really happened with him. You know, I actually found that sort of endearing that, you know, the first movie, it's it's all flash, right? And we get to see who he is on stage. And because we don't spend a whole lot of time with them off stage, understanding who they are as people, uh, what we're left with at the end of the movie, uh, of the first movie, was is a character very much like the character we're introduced to in the beginning of the movie. And in this film, I feel like now that a year has passed in the, in the film's timeline, and we get to see that this guy is not everything that he is he is made up to be uh his personality is very much a magic trick of its own right it's it's misdirection it's on the surface he's got these these quirks and these tweaks and he can't really stand up for himself and he ends up being buffy the chippy and 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 there is nothing he can do about it and so in that regard i i really uh enjoy jesse eisenberg he has a weird sort of magnetism for me a, a charisma that i'm just i don't know if it's interested in but certainly curious about uh, in every film that he does. And so I found myself really interested in who he was in this film as a different character than who he was in the last. And I'm glad he didn't take over um, more officially from Ruffalo 
I, I think that would have been frustrating. I'm not saying that um, I am not glad he didn't take over. I just felt like that as a as an element that they set up had a really weak payoff. Like I felt like they should have had more of a resolution between he, he and Dylan about that part of the story. Yeah, no, I can I, I can see that point. Uh, but it's really it's really uh, Dylan's storyline, right? So they they uh, they couldn't have split the storyline too big um, because it's really it's about Mark Ruffalo's character's arc, right? That's the main arc that's happening. In, I think so. I, yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're, they're okay, uncovering another that. central flaw. <laughs> Yeah, for me, Mark Ruffalo's character, uh, he was the least interesting and and the most frustrating character for me. I don't know. I just felt like he was just, uh, I I just didn't feel like he was quite connected to the story as strongly as the other characters. Or maybe I just didn't get into him. I wasn't as interested in him. I I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But for some reason, his character for me ended up feeling like a weak link. Because he's playing the same character he played in Spotlight, Andy. You you don't know (laughs) it, but you were bored in that movie, too. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, his whole, you know, holding a grudge for 30 years and having to, quote unquote, hit the bottom, uh, you know, is <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> right. Some bad writing right there. Uh, you know, the long game, all of that history of how the the FBI agent, you know, heard him speak at the at the training and, you know, she wanted to be him, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. I do feel like it was a, a little bit... Uh, cobbled together i generally don't find the main character most interesting in a film i'm not really sure if that's a disease that we can <laughs> coin um <laughs> uh, i don't think tricky. i have ever heard that <laughs> i don't i generally don't like the leads i don't i i really don't um that's awesome uh but i agree that he's he's not quite well constructed enough you know and is he really is he going to be M to you know the four horsemen's James Bond you know like how what what role is he going to take going forward to me the beginning of the film where he's clearly working with the four horsemen but he's still the FBI agent I thought you can't start a story like this where he gets it both ways he's getting his case you know he's he's there he's what going to feed the FBI false information and then I even wonder he's saying oh they're the four horsemen there's something on the message boards about this octo thing I'm like okay so he's tipping them that but then later on it's like oh you directed all our troops to these other you know all the all the agents yeah. to these other cities so I thought well what out of nowhere out of, yeah they just I've- they didn't know what to do with this character I thought you we, what we liked about the begin in the first film was oh okay that we could see later on he's playing both sides and what he's trying to do but here it felt like they just really didn't know what to do with with his character. So now I didn't think that he, uh, because I thought when that happens, when they show up and he's saying, but you've been directing our people elsewhere. In my mind, what's happening is the Daniel Radcliffe character and that whole piece of it, because they're, they're now on to them and they're quote unquote in control and they're playing their card um, that they're the ones who have been doing that. And it's catching Mark Ruffalo's character as off guard as anybody else. I don't think the writing's that smart <laughs> for this film. <laughs> I think okay, that's fair. assuming a lot. Sorry. <laughs> because I, to me, they, he, his character just stumbled around, I think, like, as it got going. And we, you know, again, sit him in a room with Morgan Freeman for 10 minutes and have them talk at each other. And we, we start to get what they want to do with this character. But early on, I thought they... You know, I was glad to see that they 
turn the tables on the horsemen right away. So clearly now their their plan falls apart. They're on the run. I thought, okay, we've got to take them from a position of power and and get that taken away from them to put them on uncomfortable territory. So I was glad to see that happen. But for for so long with you know Dylan's character, I just you know because you've got the one agent who's like, oh, I I think you're you're really smart, but you just play dumb, and I'm going to be on to you. And I thought. Where is this coming from? We haven't seen anything. You've just got, you know, ex- exposition being thrown out, you know, without showing us anything. You've just got characters telling all this stuff. And it, it really just frustrated me because it was so much less. And again, a movie about magic that should be all about the show. There was too much telling. I think that's a central uh, a central challenge I had, Steve. You're describing the FBI stuff. Those were wildly underused characters, and it could have been a major storyline, maybe in another movie. Like I, I could have really dealt with a crime story, like a, even a procedural about trying to uncover who uh, Ruffalo is on the force, and it's something yes. that they never made good on in the first movie. And now, I, anyway, uh, I agree with you. That was a weird thing to add in. They didn't need it. It was. It was. Um, it ended up making it more messy. What about Woody? Uh, Woody plays twins, Merritt and Chase McKinney. Uh, did we did we like Woody? He was my favorite part, uh, I, and I think it's just because he had those two characters that he played, and they were so different. And there was such a great. Uh, I, I just thought it was a brilliant way to uh, to expand on him as a character by giving him a twin brother. There's this weird animosity between the two of them, and I could never quite like pin is like is there is he going to be the guy who's going to come in at the end as the guy who's like actually on our side, or is he going to always be on the bad guy's side? I, and I I enjoyed that there was kind of that element of the brother with the animosity and uh, just the two of them. I thought uh, or the him playing those two versions uh, so differently. I just thought he did a fantastic job. I think he was probably that was probably my favorite part of this film is watching those two versions of of uh woody i always like the comic relief when it's successful and for me uh the comic relief there was for the most part uh really successful and i would like to add that in the next film if they keep those two characters the two fbi agents right they'll be the ones hunting ruffalo's character they'll be the ones hunting dylan right so there's that yeah set up for the future use of those those characters but I, you know, I, I I laughed. There were plenty of times with Woody Woody Harrelson's um, character that I laughed. So, and I like the, I like the comic relief. So, you know, it worked for me for the most part. To, to me, for, I don't know what it was, but he reminded me a lot of Matthew McConaughey's character in Tropic Thunder. I don't know if it was the hair <laughs> oh, or the so teeth. Good. And and then I thought, well, maybe working together on True Detective, they, you know, he just decided to pick some stuff up from him. But there was just something about that character that just had this McConaughey vibe to it. That is uncanny. Now that I'm looking at that picture, Steve, it's uncanny. That has to, it has to be an homage. It has to be. It, it's it was entertaining. I, I mean, they kept that aspect of the character from the first because there were some there were some great laughs, you know, in the first film, and they they you know with the hypnotism and all of that. So they kept that through there, and so they did keep that lightness. Again, to me, still not enough of it. I wanted more, but it was at least something that I I found myself laughing and enjoying and thought, yeah, this this casting, this little gimmick is working. I'm I'm going to go along with it. I you know, I'm with you. I think the the major uh, fall for me, the the big problem I had with his character is they let us hear his his uh, whispering, uh, his hypnotism. And in the first movie, they don't. 
Uh, it's always leaning in. It's always watching him whisper. You never know what he's saying to to allow him to hypnotize people. And I think my hunch is it's letting us hear all of his his words uh, is akin to showing us the strobe lights for the making the rain go up. Right? Uh, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's pulling back the curtain, but it actually makes his like power of persuasion less impactful for me and i think that that deteriorates his his role on the team for me i love the twin thing i thought it was actually really quite funny and 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 i thought it was every time he was on i thought that was great so how about dave uh, franco uh, the the younger franco as jack wilder the card throwing maniac he's fine i you know I, I i remember enjoying him as much as i could in the first one and you know i think he kind of fit the same bill in this one i mean i i enjoy him he's probably my least favorite of the of the group i liked him just fine <laughs> if yeah. they can work if they can work in a, a shirtless opportunity i'm for that <laughs> um i you know and i i liked i liked that they developed his character a little bit more i like the relationship that he had with woody Har- harrelson's character and god knows the the i hate it when they force romance in movies but i, I at least found his romance with lulu's character or lulu's character at least somewhat believable whereas the whole crap about Dylan's, you know, relationship falling in love with the French chick was just ridiculous in the first movie. I totally even forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> he was, uh, Franco was lauded pretty universally by his castmates as the one who really got the magic, the sleight of hand stuff. He has a, a, a dexterity and an agility with his hands that allow him to do things that they uh, really, really struggled to do, and he did them quite naturally. So I actually found that really, uh, I, it made me enjoy watching him more, uh, knowing that and having seen the behind the scenes stuff where he's actually tossing these cards up, flicking these cards up and catching them in his mouth, and he's, he's splitting bananas by throwing cards like that stuff was it made his part better for me so i actually thought he did he did pretty well we got to talk about the fourth horseman lizzie kaplan lula may i already mentioned that we like the um uh, we like the the romance oh i i don't i, I didn't like it i think i think i, I heard you say it. you found the romance the central uh thing that you admired in the movie that it was the most important and that no, you liked no. it the most no i'm afraid the, the I'm mostest afraid that's, that's, that's not right <laughs> Perhaps uh, Dave Franco's uh, dexterous hands, maybe. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> You're blinded um, by, Dave, by Dave Franco's dexterous hands. Yes. Somebody put uh, that I on did. a shirt. <laughs> I, I found Lizzie Kaplan's performance in this film I, I, almost like a thousand times better than Isla Fisher's performance in the first one. To me, she felt so not in sync with the other actors in the first film. I kept, at times I was like, what is she doing in this movie? Like, did she, was she forced to do it? Did she like her agent signed her up and she was like, Oh, you know, crap. Now I have to do this movie. Um, I found, uh, Lizzie Chaplin's, I don't know, just general chemistry with the group way more compelling than Isla Fisher. So I was, I, I enjoyed her way more. She was uh, a very welcome addition. I, I wasn't quite sure uh, initially when she came in because I really just, I, I had so many problems watching the scene when she shows up in uh, in Atlas's apartment and is like, it's like she's a uh, nightcrawler and she's like bamfing around the room. It, you know, it just got so silly to me that she was never there when he would turn around. I'm like, oh God, this is just as bad as the first one. But <laughs> 
her character ended up being um, another of my favorites. As much as I enjoyed Woody's twin, I was so enjoying everything that she was doing in the film, especially like her bit when she uh, you know rags on Dylan for assuming that she's the one who doesn't know how to ride a motorbike. That was a, a fun little bit, and she just was she fit. She felt like she fit this group of these four horsemen. Um, so much better than Isla Fisher did. She's, I think she's got a scene with each of them where she's basically showing off, you think you know me, but you don't. Because she's got that scene with, with Jack, a little sort of romantic scene, and he talks about, oh, his past troubles with girls. And she's, <laughs> and she's right. basically like, you know, she's like, oh, yeah. And, you know, she's lifted his wallet, his belt, you know, that whatever, peanuts great. out of his peanuts. pocket. <laughs> but, yeah, don't underestimate me. You know, she's constantly, you know, showing you, you're underestimate. You don't know what I'm capable of. And I thought that was really fresh. Uh, you know, and I was I was hoping and maybe I didn't stick around for the end credits, but I, you know, I I'm hoping it's out there of her pulling the hat out of the rabbit trick because I would really <laughs> love to see that. <laughs> it was not at the end of the credits. I'll tell you that. Oh, it was not. Okay. It was not. <laughs> I, I really like her. This whole geek magic vibe she, with the head chopping thing and, you know, hearing her talk about that gag, like how they actually drop her into the couch. Uh, like they, they built that thing. There was no CG. They build that thing so that when the guillotine comes down, she drops into the couch, and and thus is the trick. I thought it was fantastic. Um, the I didn't quite mind the bamfing, the nightcrawler bamfing about the place, uh, but mostly her charisma on screen was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I that she was such. Uh, she she was just egregious in her following of Dave Franco. It might help be helpful to picture each other naked. Like I was in stitches every time she was she was doing something with Franco. I thought she was just great. Uh, okay, so uh, the uh, Radcliffe. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe says, uh, "Hey, you know, it's nice being a British bad guy. It's very exciting. I feel like it's a rite of passage." He says, which uh, which I I I think he's very charming. What do we think of Dana Radcliffe as Walter Mabry? I liked that he was a such a jovial bad guy. You know, I, I you know, I mean, I I didn't. Uh, ha- I, I guess I didn't really have any problems with him. I didn't. Uh, it wasn't like a huge surprise or anything. Oh, he ended up being Michael Caine's son. Anything like that? Like nothing really blew me away. Um, but, um, yeah, but he was just, I don't know, he was just so fun. He seemed like he was genuinely having a good time making this film. And so I guess I find him such a compelling person to watch that, for me, I just kind of went along with it, and I, I thought he was good. Yeah, I enjoyed his performance, too. I, I like how he didn't wear any shoes a lot of the time. But I did. I've, I also found his, I, I found it charming. I, it was easy to watch. Uh, you know, it was believable enough to be believable, I guess. Uh, and uh, all of his quick tete-a-tetes and his sort of, um, you know, snarkiness uh, worked for me. You know, he he brought to that character what what it, it needed, which was that, you know, I'm I'm wealthy, I'm powerful, I'm I've got this ego, I think I'm in control of everything, you know, even at the end. You know, it's like I you know, I I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this. You know, he's he's got this sense of he's a guy that's used to being in control. And it and I thought that worked very well. Uh as much as I would like to talk a lot about Morgan Freeman and Michael Caine, I'm not going to because I think that they were really really poorly used in this film. Especially Michael Caine. It was really frustrating. Oh yes, they as I said earlier, I I don't didn't need them in the film at all. Yeah, I mean, it didn't bug me that they were in the film. It felt like, you know, I 
unlike the olden days when they'd make a sequel, they could hardly get anybody to come back. Now it's like they get everybody to come back. So I guess it's just no surprise that they had everybody and more, you know, just as that's the way it is. So it didn't, didn't surprise me. It didn't bug me too much. I guess they were there, you know. Well, and maybe it was, it was already spoiled. But I don't know if it would, I'm usually not sort of swayed by these kinds of announcements. Oh my gosh, uh, you know, Daniel Radcliffe is playing Michael Caine's son, but Michael Caine had spoiled it like a year ago. Uh, and said, "Oh yes, I'm. I'm Daniel Radcliffe is my son in the next Now You See Me movie. So, I, like, it wasn't a big surprise. It wasn't a big secret. And so, I really, I mean, I, I thought Radcliffe did a just a fine job as the bad guy. And that's, I, I could have been okay with that. Uh, okay, so getting it made, uh, global uh, production. This is this is one of those that was part of a a a deal between Lionsgate and uh, Hunan TV." Uh, to um, uh, co-produce in in partnership in China, so taking it to Macau is um, uh, let's see uh, premeditated. Let's just say that it brings in uh, Jay Chu, uh, who is a, a major Chinese star. Uh, he is the grandson in the Magic Shop and member of the Eye, and it gets them shooting on location in Macau. I thought the I thought it was actually quite nice uh, visiting Macau, the, the Las Vegas of China. I loved Macau, and actually, I loved the way they ended up there. Like, that for me was, uh, I don't know, I guess in my mind, I liked that sort of magic trick in this film so much more than the giant bubbles in the first one. Like, the fact that they go down this tube and they wind up in in this uh, Chinese, in the, you know, the laundry baskets for a Chinese restaurant, that was really fun. And I, I guess those are the elements that I appreciated in this film more so than the first film. And uh, they explain all of that. It all makes sense. I, I bought into it. Um, and Macau is I mean, it's a beautiful place to go film. I What I liked about that was that, you know, at the end, you those characters are feeling what you're supposed to be feeling for the other stuff, right? They're shocked and don't understand how this could possibly be true and all of that kind of stuff, which is what you would hope as an audience member, as a magician, you as your audience members are thinking the same thing. Like, oh my God, how could this actually happen? I don't, I don't understand. So I appreciated that nod anyway uh, to that emotion. My problem with Macau uh, is that the scenes, other than the pan shot of, you know, beautiful uh, Macau with its pretty lights and all of that kind of stuff at night, you know, the street scene, the, the scene in the shop, all of that looks like a soundstage to me. Could have been in Macau, could have been in London, could have been in L.A., could have been anywhere. It didn't look, uh, except for some random street scenes where clearly, because people are waving at the camera and all that kind of stuff, they did film in Macau. The set pieces look like set pieces. Well, and I guess that's the, you know, I mean, look at Skyfall. It's kind of the same thing. You know, they're in Macau, but, you know, they go into the big casino and the big dragon at night. And it's like, yeah, it may as well be a set in in London. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I guess I I still like it. I, I like the, the sense that it... It feels that way. The uh, the cinematography is uh, by Peter Deming. Uh, Peter Deming is is very much a David Lynch guy. He did uh, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, Twin Peaks, but most importantly, he did Joe's Apartment, which was the great film about friendly cockroaches, friendly dancing cockroaches with Jerry O'Connell, who's with <laughs> me on Joe's Apartment. Am I right? Yeah, you uh? say great with quotes around it, I'm sure. <laughs> there are no quotes in anything I just said, Andy, none. That that may explain our issue with some of the faster-paced action sequences, because uh, you look at David Lynch, you don't get a lot of fast-paced ac- action sequences. You get a lot more deliberate, slow action. So it may that may be where some of our issues arises from the cinematographer. 
and shoot and how those scenes were shot. I, I don't know. That that is interesting, and and uh, you know further, uh, you know, look at uh, Stan Salfa's uh, editing. Uh, you know, he's has a healthy split between TV and film, uh, but his big action film of late is, you know, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which is, you know, a, a much, oh. it, it's a big thing, but these kind of uh, close-up, you know, fight scenes maybe, yes. maybe also not quite as, maybe much more epic yeah. and, and not quite as up close. I don't know. Good point. And he shot, he shot Oz the Great and Powerful too. And I'm trying to remember if that had any big, action sequences that I could compare. I, I just can't recall the big action. I think there was some big, big battle at the end in the, I, you know, I, that's there was one that the big I, thing I don't at the end where she turns green. We, I've right, largely yes. blocked that movie. I, I think all three of us have not revisited <laughs> that film in several years for, for good reason. Uh, I, I think this is I think this is uh, one of the uh, you know the thing I walk away with is, is cinematography and editing together. It is it, th- these are the hardest jobs in the room on this film. From what I said in the very beginning, showing make uh, magic on screen is inherently makes cynics of the audience. I think uh, because because we, we you know we automatically believe it's faked, and I think to be able to do that well is a real challenge. And for the most part, I actually uh, I really enjoyed what they did in in terms of how they portrayed. Uh, the close-up hand magic and and it, you know one of the things that uh, Ruffalo said in one of the interviews is we did a lot more magic in this movie than we did in the first movie. My response to that is it sure didn't feel like that. It didn't feel like there was as much magic or more magic than in the first movie. But what was portrayed on screen, I actually really liked. And I, I am the more we talk about it, the more of a fan I am becoming of the complexity of the vault sequence. It might be overlong. Uh, but it was really beautifully ar- articulated. I think that one of the reasons why it doesn't feel like it is, is one, we've all been, if you saw the first film, you have this expectation that it wasn't real, right? So True. you're you already in your mind, you're like thinking that it's not real. And secondly, I think what, what Andy, uh, you know, mentioned about the first scene when Lula May comes on is that even if they did build and perform a real magic trick with the breakaway, you know, uh, place in the couch underneath because they don't show it. And maybe that's why in the end they did start showing or explaining how they did a a fair amount of the tricks is you don't. And then she does all this, you know, magic disappearing where, you know, she's faster than the speed of light. Even if that part is real because the other part feels so fake, you just assume that it's all fake. You yeah, know what I mean? Fair. Yeah, absolutely. That's I, that's the uncanny valley of on-screen magic. Yeah. I think it is. I mean, I did think the water droplet scene was pretty. It's really cool. It's pretty. Yeah. But they, but again, that was one of those things where they they set that trick up in the magic shop and you see the little yes. strobe, you know, mm-hmm. thing. I'm like, "Okay, so that's how it's done." Right. But at the end, and obviously it's in such a huge scale that they couldn't have done it realistically for real with with real strobe lights with real real strobe right right, to make the actual thing happen but at the end it's just so clearly cg that it's just like okay i mean that's that that's that uncanny valley it's like they're they're setting it up the reality of it but then they they kind of in a way kind of spoil it by by yeah, yeah by doing the cg of it that's curious to me. I'm actually, that's one of those I'm going to let hang out there because I, uh, my assumption is like yours, Andy, that it is so obviously CG and there were quotes in that same sentence. Um, <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm leaving that out, out there. I have a feeling that there is a non-zero chance that I'm going to watch a behind the scenes on the DVD when it's released, on the Blu-ray when it's released. And they're going to show how that was done and how they did it. And, and a minimal use of CG in it. Non-zero chance 
minimal use of CG in that sequence. I think it's doable. Okay. All right. You, had, you heard it here. Because I know it's possible to Witness. do more than a string of things. I mean, I, I, you, I can set up enough strobes that are synced to make a, you know, a, a larger scale than just a single droplet of water look like it's a strobe and look like it's going on. I know how to do that technically, photographically. I, I know how to do that. To do it on the scale that they did it, I'm saying it's hard. I get that it's hard, but I'm not saying it's impossible. But I don't think that's what Andy is saying. What I think Andy is saying is that even if they did, which I agree with you, they possibly could have, because they have him fall through the water at the end. Yes, that's where they blow it. That's where they blow it. Um, and sure, so if you were now explaining like, well, they could have had a trap door and they could have, you know, had him fall through, you know, to have it time perfectly had a thing in his hand where he pushed the button and he falls through the water and somehow magically the water doesn't follow him on yeah. down below, or, you know, that explanation, then you're hooking me more. But, but, but not, be- that is not plausible because he's standing on brick in the middle right. of a major exactly. public area. There's not plausible that that happened. I don't, I, that I would not believe. Well, and, and he if somehow magically comes out of his shirt, you know, like that, yeah. that, that, that I, I'm not buying Had it. they panned up, there would be a naked Eisenberg running down the streets <laughs> of London. That's what I wanted to see. Yes, I, I would have been for that. Maybe, maybe it would have been Franco. But, uh. All right. Uh, you know, uh, music on this one, Brian Tyler uh, did this one. You know what? We got into it a little bit recently about the, the woeful lack of themes in uh, movie scores, I'm you know I've been listening to this one throughout the day today. There's there are some really nice themes in here. Yeah, the, I find myself humming them. Brian Tyler's score actually is the one thing that really stuck with me from the first one, and I have the soundtrack to that one, and I really enjoy what he did there. And I think he does a great job of expanding on that here. Oh my god, I didn't even notice the score except for the Asian rap, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> that was good too. That was good too. <laughs> Um, uh, all right. I, are we, uh, have we sufficiently exhausted this? Are we ready to get to the important part? Head over to flickchart.com slash TNR film board, everybody. If you do that, you will see our account for all of the films that we have talked about over the last how many years uh, on this film board show. And when you get there, what you're going to see is uh, you're going to search for this movie, Now You See Me Too, and you're going to say, add this to my flick chart. And then Flickchart's going to present you with Filmo a Filmo, one movie against another movie. you got to imagine yourself on a desert island with only two movies. This movie, Now You See Me Too, and one other movie. And we're going to rank them one after another. We'll do this about ten times, Alice. And then we're going to see where this film ends up on our list of all of the TNR Film Board films. So it is... It is not a challenging concept once we get into it, but it it is liable to give you some to to throw a clot once we get to <laughs> films that are particularly hard to rank next to one another. So get ready, yeah. our first film. Now you see me too, Andy. First one we have is The Hobbit: An Unexpected Journey. Well, I'm going to jump out there and say uh, I'm going to pick Now You See Me Too over The Hobbit: An Unexpected Journey. I'm going to say The Hobbit. I am going to side with Andy, and I am going to say The Hobbit. I, too, will side with Andy and say The Hobbit. Then then it doesn't matter. I don't matter. I'm devalued. Thank you all. Next up, Now You See Me Too or Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit. Ooh. (sighs) This is fun. (laughs) Wow. What? Which which one do you hate? Oh, my God. (laughs) I'll say Now You See Me Too, if only for Woody's twin. I agree. I agree. Wow. 
definitely. I agree. Now, yes, definitely. Now you see me too. Yeah, so Steve. It doesn't yeah, matter, but no, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. But I'll, I'll yes. I'll, I'll take I'll, I'll take Daniel Radcliffe as a as a British villain over Kenneth Branagh as bad Russian. <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> he just was not. Uh, ah, man, so many problems with that one. Now you see me too, or Godzilla. Oh. The 2014 version. We're, oh. we're talking about the. Oh, oh, right. This is the, this the, the is, oh, oh, where yeah, we've only, done this one. Yeah, where yeah. Ken Watanabe is the only person allowed to Gojira. say Gojira. Gojira. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm now. You see me too. Over Gojira. Really? <sighs> I don't know. I have how to. Andy, Andy, you, you loved God's big monsters. Big <laughs> monsters. Come on, you're with me on Godzilla. Big monsters, the Halo <laughs> drop sequence, the beauty of that, the music. <laughs> All I can think about is how much I hate this lobbying. Thing. I've had enough of this lobbying, Sarmento. I hated the guy, <laughs> the kick-ass guy who's. Oh uh, yes, oh he's horrible. horrible. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, it's true. But big monsters fighting each other, rar. <laughs> I don't know where are you falling, Alice. I have to abstain as I have not seen Godzilla. Oh, oh nuts! Course. Well, then I guess so. So oh, really, oh, it's, you are the tiebreaker. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I was hoping to get some help on this one, but I guess <laughs> sorry, <not>. sorry, <laughs> that's all right. Um, geez, I mean, if I had to pick between the two, I probably would pick. I feel like I'm going to pick. Now you see me too, that's which right. kind of surprises that's right. you. Are let it go, move on. Let's that's click, right. click it and I do the next one. That. Stop I, talking. I, I, okay, well here we go. Now you see me too, or the Born Legacy. Oh, Number Born four. Legacy. That's wait, the. Wait, wait. That's the that's, third one. That's the no, fourth that's, one with uh, that's the Jeremy Renner. Jeremy Renner. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'll still go born. Yeah, yeah I will definitely too. born legacy. Now you see me too, or Cloud Atlas, everybody's favorite uh, mess of uh, craziness. Now you see me too. Uh, oh my god, uh, I'm gonna have to go. Now Atlas. you see me too as well. That's the spirit. Oh. <laughs> oh. I, I'm going for the craziness of Cloud Atlas. Oh. Wow. Oh. Wow. Uh, so Steve, it's because you're a Tom learning, Hanks I'm fetishist. Learning That's such right. Important oh, wow. right now. That's right. Uh, I'm I'm leaning to Cloud Atlas because it didn't make me as angry with the plot holes. I agree it's a it's a mess, but there's What? There's so much potential in Cloud Atlas. <laughs> yes, there is. There is. It's, there's something fun in that okay. ridiculousness. Whereas oh, this one just the plot holes you could drive a boat through, or or I should say right. plot holes Lizzie Kaplan can levitate a boat through that we don't see. <laughs> she doesn't need to because birds in a jacket. Yeah, birds oh in a jacket. Yeah. Be- because Franco's nimble hands. Come on. <laughs> Uh, I right. think this is a tie. It's yeah, we got to do a Rochambeau. All right. Oh, oh my God. God. All right. I'll take it for our team because Alice is new. Thank you, Pete. You're welcome. Okay. But next time it's on you. Who's, who's right, you up ready? for team whatever your movie? Cloud Atlas. Do you want to do it, Steve? Yeah. Sure, I'll do it. Here we go. Okay. One, One two, two, three. Ah. There you go. Man. <laughs> oh. All right. Uh, next up, we have Now You See Me Too or Flickchart's Thinking again. Come on, Flickchart. Okay. Now You See Me Too or Divergent. I am definitely oh, oh, oh. Now You See Me Too. Uh-huh. Now You oh. See Me Too. Yeah, Now You See Me Too. That was before we stopped doing those movies. That's yeah. Right. We never quite finished that series. <laughs> no, there's a reason. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, that leaves it at number 29 on our what? list. Wow. 29 out of 47. Okay. All right. Wow. 
There you go. Watch some bad movies. You know what? To <laughs> be fair, have a lot of bad movies. <laughs> There's a, 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 a lot. So it's so it ranked higher than the first one. Correct. The first one's yes. like forty, like forty-two or six or forty something. Wow. Yeah, forty-six yeah. out of forty-nine, something like that. Yeah. Wow, we really hated that. I don't. We you sure know? did. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I, I would. Oh, you rank guys that did. I listened to the podcast. You guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, where does this put us on our on our letterbox ranking? If you're going to do out of five stars, you'd give it how many stars? Three. Solid three stars to open the bid. Two stars. Two stars, Andrew. I think I'm at two and a half. Two, two and a half, and three. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with two and a half to make the math easy. <laughs> okay. How's that? Fair. <laughs> uh, thanks for your logical reasoning. To there you go. My, emo- my emotions are all based on math. <laughs> so, uh, this, so yes, that's that's, that's great. This there is a nice two point five. Perfect. Uh, all right. So uh, this is this is a great conversation. Uh, where do we go from here? Uh, what's our first of all? What's our next film board film? Speaking of, I think it's Born. It is. Don't we have that. We have the Born. Film. That's right. Jason Bourne. That's right. Jason Bourne. Matt Damon's return. Shirtless and thugging. So that's <laughs> next month uh, on the film. But we've got some other things coming up. Uh, Andy, what's what's next? Uh, yeah, next up we have our uh, Listener's Choice episode for The Great Escape coming out uh, later this week. And then uh, next week, uh, Steve's next trailer rewind for Mr. Nobody is going to be... Uh, that's right. It's... Tuesday. It's uh, we finally, Pete. We we're doing one of your trailer picks. Oh, I'm so gratified. You know, so we found we found a film. You had to go all the way trailer back to November 2013 <laughs> to find something that we wanted to watch. That was no, actually, you know, you you pick a lot of films that we end that end up on the film board, like Child 44, which also end up terrible. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> That's good. You're not hiding that from anybody. <laughs> Uh, so we've got that coming up and we do have our next series on the next real uh, main show is our vacation challenge this is where Andy and I go on vacation and we challenge you to listen to these shows we've given ourselves a, a, a challenge I I was uh, tasked with finding a, a great uh, stop motion film we'll be doing Paranorman and Andy was tasked with finding his favorite end of the world comedy and he has in fact chosen Dr. Strangelove uh, so those are coming up uh, later on in the month that should be uh, a lot of fun I've also got a little three of a kind oh, I've been did, working on. Did I I've skip you little, again, that's Steve? okay. You know, it's 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 been a working process. It's it's interesting because it's it's about the creative process. And as I was pulling this together, I, I came upon a theme of where I was going to tie together creative process, looking at the head, the heart, and the hands. And then I listened to your Metropolis discussion, where you guys talked a lot about the head, the heart, and the hands. Oh, so it's like it was meant it was, to be. It was meant to be. Very, very much look forward to that. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Steve. And Alice, thank you so much for joining us. What do do people uh, have to look forward to uh, over at Educating Geeks? Well, we just uh, finished recording three live podcasts at Phoenix Comic Con, uh, where we talked about Labyrinth, which is enjoying its 30th anniversary. Uh, And we always do American Horror Story. Uh, It's a tradition for us. So we talked about Hotel. I personally uh, did not participate in that one because I don't really do horror. However, for some reason, I got uh, lassoed into talking about Penny Dreadful. <laughs> which I'm, you know, whatever. I'm not Who's sure the dummy now? <laughs> I know, right? Um, 
But uh, so those will, uh, I, I believe they start coming out uh, next Friday and uh, they'll run, I think it'll take us uh, about six weeks to get through all of them. Oh, goodness. Lots to look forward to. It's fantastic. And and uh, where do you like people to subscribe the most? Probably through uh, SoundCloud or Stitcher. Uh and you can also, I mean, the, the easiest thing is to go to the site uh, and you can listen to it there. And there are quick and easy to find uh, subscribe here buttons all over the site. So pick the one of your choosing and join us. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, thank you, everybody, uh, for uh, joining us on the show as ever. Andy, uh, it's a treat. Always. We'll see you next week. Steve, great to hear your voice again. I think I'm going to go lock myself back in that safe after this film. <laughs> a good idea. And Alice, I hope you'll come back. Oh, absolutely. This was a blast. Awesome. Just what we wanted to hear. Ego stroked. And <laughs> we're out of here. Thanks, everybody. Here on the Film Board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. TheNextReel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to TheNextReel.com slash originals and get your next read today. (laughs) 